just a really quick um, scenario. Who, I need a husband and wife that are willing to read husband and wife parts. Anybody? Uh, how about your us? <laughs> now, she would be Jill, okay? You'll be Jim. Just be generous. We get to have a fight. Okay. Let me set this up. Let me set this up. There's a little dispute, a little fight going on, and you'll hear the dialogue. Go ahead. Jill and Jim. Do we need to think through what to do with our money? We've got a lot more than expected this year. That's a good question. We can contact a financial advisor at my job and see if he has any advice. But it costs money to see this guy. But the money has been sitting in our account for a while. We need to do something. I know, I know. We've got to do something about it, but I don't want to rush. Don't you trust me? We agreed that I'll handle the finances. Honey, I trust you, but you're not all that proactive when it comes to investments. <laughs> Well, I could name a few areas that you're not correct. <laughs> Stop it, John. That was mean. <laughs> well, it's <is> true. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. That's a good Thank you. Very good. Very good. Very good. Well, this wasn't really my idea. Jeff and uh, Pastor um, had wrote me into teaching, so we call this we call this backdoor practical theology. So um, anyway, the scenario starts. The, the text that we're using and the uh, material we're using is from Capitol Hill Baptist, and um, so I'm kind of cutting, and pasting, and moving them around a little bit so we can we can get 30 minutes of teaching in of each one of these things. So every lesson really be broken into like two or three lessons, um, and so we have the, the curriculum, and it's I'm just sort of adding the touches and nuances to. The, the passages here. Um, and so I'll try to get 30 minutes in. Is that about right, Jeff? 30, 35 minutes? Each one. Quarter after. Okay. Well, we'll try to get out as fast as soon as we can. So you, you heard the conversation. It was sort of a typical fight argument over one, over an issue. And um, and so we might even be tempted to say, well, that's a that poor couple. You know, they got all these issues they're working through. But uh, and we could sort of kind of categorize them. That be Jill's questioning John handling the finances, or really ability to handle the finances. John uh, being defensive, I'll handle this, and then uh, then going on the offense here. And I can name a few things uh, in your life too. And then her honest critique of John, uh, she really John took it personal. There's a lot of little issues as we could see here, how they were offended, and then they stomped out or started crying and instead of reconciling and apologizing, ended the conversation or conflict. It's sort of a typical thing where God is not the center of your marriage. And we're going to talk about that. I thought it was a really unique uh, topic, you know, title as he unpacks this thing. We'll talk about it. It's never a good way to end a marriage thing, but I want you to think about this godless marriage, just what we're talking about. Was the marriage really godless? And... Um, I know you would think, wow, I mean, I don't know how you think about that. We'll get some input. But I want you to think in terms of this, where the God's not in the center, and it's, a, it's really a godless <coughs> marriage. It just means functionally. Functionally, okay? So let's talk about definition just real quick and just some feedback with, the, with you guys, if you would. Just give me some feedback. What do you think when you think of a godless marriage? This is when you talk. <laughs> Chuck, and godless as you just defined it, meaning not the center, or yes, completely. Yes, not the center. 
Yep. We might use words like, they use the word godless. I'm going to use Christ-centered. Christ-centered, but godless, yeah. I think but, one reason is is not being taught how to do that. Yes. Uh, and not having that example. Yeah, you read my part of my text. I, I mean, Don't go that far. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. You're exactly right. Some of it's not being taught. Anything else? Kevin, you have your hand up? No, that was okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Lack of intentional spiritual oneness. Yes, intentional spiritual oneness. Good. Very good. So there's a lot of opinions. I mean, we could talk. When I think, I was thinking about this when I first thought about it. I said, hey, when I think of a godless marriage, I'm talking about two people who really don't love the Lord. I'm talking about two people who just who don't go to church, don't love the Lord, don't read their Bible. That wouldn't be any of us, you know. Um, but in his terms, he's saying it's functional. It's momentary. When we're, when we're in the fight, are we, God, are we God-centered or are we godless? And so he's talking about this in a functional term. Um, so it's kind of drastic using that term, but it's really uh, in a functional way makes you think a little bit. And I think about 2 Timothy 3. Uh, when he said people have a form of godliness or the appearance of godliness but denying the power Second uh, Timothy 3, 5 it's really that word form or resemblance or resemblance uh, is what they're using in King James but I think that, that sometimes that's what we're talking about like a facade if you will uh, that we have a you know we have a spoken theology but our functional theology is way off um, again we're kind of coming back to that again but here's a note. Uh, if you're going to take a note, I would say this is this is pretty important. The Bible only works when it's faith and function, and not affection of theory. It's only working when it's faith and function, not affection and theory. So we give affection because we give ourselves credit for loving the Word of God. We love Jesus, however we formulate that in our minds. We love the Word of God, the parts that we read or we have um, reverence for. But again, there's a function versus um, a, a theory that the theoretical part of Christianity never works. It just never works. Uh, people try it all the time. So we are sincere about God, but not serious about God. <clears throat> wow. How long have we been teaching? Five minutes? and We're in it pretty heavy. But this is really basically what he's talking about here. And I think that's the point, is that it sort of kind of hope, hopefully kind of shakes us up a little bit to say, come on, uh, we need to be serious about God. And so we, we don't want a form of godliness that denies the power. The power really is in change. How's, it, how's God and his word changing us? What's different today than yesterday? And that's the point. So you may be tempted to think that uh, in terms of religious activity, godlessness may be uh, the absence of religious activity uh, or even affections. Even our affections, we can be affectionate or sincere about our faith and still be godless. I mean, Pharisees weren't. Many people who have a lot of religiosity function that way. And so uh, I consider this like our function is in what I call our faith in real time. My trusting God today. See, what I did yesterday really doesn't matter. All the all the great you know successes in Christianity yesterday really don't count today. It was history. There's no grace there, and it doesn't count tomorrow because the grace is not available it's tomorrow. It's, it's today that makes a difference. Even if the Hebrew writers said the same thing, 
that it's about our faith today, trusting God today. It's important. And that's the way it is in our marriage. It's like, okay, it doesn't matter how good I did yesterday or what I'm intention for tomorrow. It's what I'm functioning today that makes such a big difference in our life. So how we engage in the conflict with your faith in God makes a difference. That's sort of my little sort of thesis statement and then just setting this thing up and go, going through this whole process. So we can look at this couple and figure out that these people have some serious problems, but really the problem that they, that Capital Baptist really emphasized this thing is their marriage is godless in function. So they didn't really stop and say, what does the Lord want me to do? What, find out what pleases the Lord. Use the grace of God in, in solving this problem. They didn't really do that. Um, so keeping in mind the functionality of, of this marriage thing is what we're talking about. So practically speaking, marriage didn't involve God at the moment that they were disputing Jim and Jill. So many of our marriages are like that. It's kind of missing uh, God in the center. Christ is not the real center of our marriage. Functionally, it could be today and then tomorrow it's not. Same thing with the, when it comes to uh, sharing the scriptures or if you're going to sit down and counseling. It's very typical when I talk about um, talk therapy versus biblical counseling. Where talk therapy is, you know, we're having a good discussion and we're both in agreement with this and we have some dialogue. But it doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't convict anything. It doesn't really get to the serious issues of life because I didn't open the Word of God, which is doesn't have a side, and it's just true truth and in, and in reality. And so, therefore, something happens. So, again, am I being a biblical counselor when there's no Bible? Probably not. Just functionally. So, um, Ephesians five ten. Uh, I, I'm reading verses eight through twelve. It says, "For one time you were in darkness, but now you're in light of the Lord. In the Lord." Walk as children of light. That means live. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the issue. That's the big one right there. So let's um, let's take a look at the, the PowerPoint as we will. And I got a little quick video from Trip, as you know I like. <coughs> So I'm hoping that uh, it plays, that I did it better. Uh, Paul Tripp is my guest. He's written this book, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. He is a pastor at uh, the 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, he also is a professor of pastoral life and care at Redeemer Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He's also the director of the Center for Pastoral Life and Care in Fort Worth, Texas. And you must have a split personality because I don't know how you do all of this at the same time. How do you manage to be pastoring in Philadelphia and a, and a professor in Dallas and involved in Fort Worth all at the same time? I'm very thankful for the jet plane. <laughs> That's how. <laughs> it would be impossible without that. Yeah, like me, you live in airplanes, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, welcome. It's great to well, have you here. here. Now, uh, this is a very big book. Um, it's got almost 300 pages and there's no way we can cover it all, but I... Uh, a few things. At the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. I think it's at the beginning you talk about grace-based uh, grace based marriage. And then at the end of the book you say grace is a, um, a lifetime warranty on marriage. Explain what you mean. You know, one of the things I, I think that people don't understand is that Jesus didn't just die for my past or my future. He died for my here and now. People don't understand the present benefits of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and maybe that, that means i got to first understand 
how deep my need is for that grace. Um, one of the reasons one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I'm a man who hasn't appreciated marriage books because I think that they talk about the location of the problems, but they don't talk about why we struggle in living with one another. I mean, everybody who's listening, who's married right now, has been disappointed in marriage in some way. Why is that? Why is it that all of us struggle in some way in these primary relationships of life? What does the Bible say about that? And how does Christ meet us at the point of that struggle? It's really what the book is about. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, again and again, you're making the point that um, these six commitments that uh, precede every chapter are, are really expressions of grace. Um, if you want to be vindictive, if you want to get even, if you want uh, constant justice, you're never going to make it in marriage. Uh, there's a give and a take here. The, the six commitments are not rooted in my trust of my spouse. They're rooted in my trust of Christ. Mm-hmm. When I realize the enormous, eternal grace that I have been given, I want to give that grace to the people I live with. And that grace, giving that grace, radically alters the relationship. Right. I want to focus on on uh, the chapter that you entitled <coughs> "Canceling Debts." Um, first of all, you talk about some of the um, uh, the real challenges that people often face in marriage. And number one <coughs> is immaturity. And as a pastor myself, I you know I, I've known people in their seventies and eighties who still haven't matured. Uh, how does immaturity uh, erode a marriage? Well, you know, I think of my own story when, when I was courting my wife and I thought that I was deeply, fully in love with her. I looked for that moment where I could say, you know, I love you. And I said that to her and she said, what do you mean you love me? What do you know about love? And I was offended when she said that, but she was, she was absolutely right. I was 17 years old. I knew little about what love was about. Uh... Most people who get married, at the age they get married, have all kinds of immaturity in them. And grace really does believe in process. Grace really does believe in delayed gratification. Grace is willing to hang in there because I love you and we're going to deal with that immaturity. We're going to grow up together. And we're committed to going through the the process of doing that. Let me say one thing. That means it means that we have to have a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. Because I'm married to a flawed person who's living in a fallen world who still needs the grace of Christ. That person's going to have a bad day. They're going to make bad decisions. They're going to say bad things. They're going to have moments of selfishness. Well, duh. Of course. And we've got to have a way of dealing with that. Here's what happens in average marriage. I come to my husband or my wife, and I want to point out a failure. The minute I do that, that activates that person's inner lawyer. And rather than saying, thank you, I'm sure there are places where I'm immature. I definitely need help. I know I need to grow. I'm glad we're in a relationship with you. That person is offended. They begin to defend themselves. They next tell tell the other person they're not the only sinner in the room. And we're off to the races. Instead of... Think about this. Anytime my ears hear or my ears I see your sin, weakness, and failure, it's not 
an obstruction or an interruption or a hassle. It's grace. God loves you. He's put you in this relationship. He's going to reveal your heart so that other person can be part of God's instrumentality of help and change. That's a beautiful story. But we're living this other narrative where you cannot talk to me about those things. You cannot say I'm immature. You cannot say I failed. Then how will the marriage ever change? You've closed all the doors to change. Hmm. Um, I, I was going to. Well, I'm going to ask you this question. You don't deal with the book, but where's where's the line between being graceful and being an enabler of uh, dysfunction? You see. One of the things I love about the message in, of Scripture, the message of grace in Scripture, is grace never calls wrong right. Grace is needed because wrong is wrong. And so being gracious doesn't mean I'm just going to live with your mess. It doesn't mean that at all. It means grace is about the way that we put those things on the table. Is this why you say a little, a little later in the chapter that uh, forgiving is not forgetting? that you need to be remembering your own need of grace and your own failures in the broader context of this relational dynamic where someone has hurt you. It's, it's not forgetting because I want to learn from those things. It's no longer holding those things against you is what forgiveness is. I'm not going to treat you in light of all those, all those failures because we can never pass beyond them if I do that. And, and, you know, people say forgive and forget. I mean, how do you forget unless you have some capacity to uh, put something into the dark recesses of your brain? I mean... Of course you're going to remember, but you're not going to uh, hold it against someone. And my wife and I are regularly benefiting from lessons we've learned that we want to remember. Now, you mentioned nurturing dislike. Talk to me about that. Is it possible to, to, to dislike someone you're trying to love? Sure. Sure. I think, I think it's possible for, for couples to, in one place... Uh, have romantic feelings toward one another, maybe even places of appreciation. But what they've done is they've kept a record of wrongs uh, that begins to structure the way I think about you. So I view you not in, uh, in light of your strengths and uh, the, the benefits that you've brought to this relationship. I think of you in light of your darkest, weakest uh, most immature things. They become the lens that I look at you with. So I've, I've nurtured that dislike. So in a moment, I don't expect the best from you. I'm actually expecting the opposite. And when you fail, I throw my hands up and say, here we go again, and I put up my protective wall. And because of this, um, we have four areas we're going to talk about um, dealing with this. Uh, four reasons for godless marriages functionally, and one of them he mentioned in this video, our spiritual immaturity. So we act as we're functioning like the world. Now notice in Second Corinthians, and I hope that's Second Corinthians, I think it's first. It's first Corinthians, I think. Um, <coughs> Yeah, 1 Corinthians 3, I'm sorry about that. Brothers, I did not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. He was talking to the saints there, but he said brothers. Mere infants in Christ, verse 2. I gave you milk, not solid food. You were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Verse 3. You are still worldly. 
Or since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, you are not, are you not worldly? Are you not acting as mere men? Or when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, aren't you being mere men? And Paul's addressing the Corinthians here and criticizes their spirituality uh, being immature. Despite that they're Christians, uh, Paul condemns them as being mere worldly people. And so uh, in our marriages, it's almost like the same way. We're preoccupied with worldly things rather than spiritual matters. So we show our immaturity in our faith when there's conflict most times. Um, and so kind of note this, that our spiritual diets kind of reflect the same thing, that we take in spiritual milk rather than solid food. Let me just define spiritual milk and, salt and meat, spiritual meat, just quickly. One, milk focuses on how Christianity affects me. Meat concentrates on our sin and, and obedience to the master. That's the idea. And so a lot of times people live on milk, especially churches that are compromising. They don't really get into the depths of teaching the whole counsel of God. And so it's always about how much Jesus loves you and how much you love Jesus. And it never gets to the heart of sin. It never gets down to the place where you're scraping into the depths of our sin and, and unbelief. So being spiritually immature is one problem. The other one is our unbelief and selfishness. We act like and we function like functional atheists. We function like functional atheists. Those guys at Capital Baptists don't pull any punches. This is in Hebrews 3, 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. Remember we talked about that. It's not yesterday. It's not tomorrow. That, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we first had. The author here talks about Christians again. He says brothers. But he's warning about choosing unbelief. It's kind of a scary thing if you think about it. I think the idea is that our free will is always able to choose sin. Choose sin. I think it's the grace of God that helps you choose life. I mean, we don't. that's not something that comes from our flesh. But uh, they choose unbelief. I hope you caught that part because of the deceitfulness of sin. There's two parts of this. Warning to Christians acting like non-Christians. Um, it's inconsistent, you know, our, to, to start thinking that we, we profess one thing and we live another, but we all do that. In some places of our life, we're all doing that. And so um, I'm sure that in some places in this room, I mean, there might be people in this room that uh, really are functioning in a worldly way, I wouldn't think in this room, but um, and they maybe they don't know Christ. That's another option, basically. But again, he's addressing people who are following unbelief and, and practicing unbelief. Like in verse 15 or 14, and we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we first had. The perseverance is so needed, and yet we're functioning as a non-Christian. That's a problem. That's one root issue here. The second thing he warns Christians about giving into a momentary atheism or, you know, choosing unbelief. Functional atheists. That's what we are sometimes when we choose something that's unbelieving. Rather than question being Christians, there are certain times in our marriage that we choose unbelief and we don't fight for the faith. We just don't do it. 
Um, some call this passive unbelief. Uh, whatever you want to call it, but it, the thing is we're functioning that way. I catch myself, a lot of times, I mean, I'm going to do this, I can get through it, and then I, when I get on the other side, then I ask, what what did God want me to do? And I, I, I really was the biggest mistake. I should be asking that. But I chose to, to do something that I knew was not right. And that's basically what we call momentary atheism. Um, yeah, functional atheist is, is what he calls it here. But more important, we're actively choosing unbelief. I'm sort of trying to beat the clock so we can get all four of these in. Now, here's some things that we do when we act like this. I, I just made a list of them. When husbands are acting unbelie- in unbelief, what's it look like? And I just listed a few of them. Uh, he knows that uh, I am to sacrifice for my wife, like Christ sacrificed for the church, but I choose not to do so. Rather serve her, I'd rather fulfill my own comfort and desires. Or I know I'm engaged uh, to engage with my wife emotionally, but it's easier just to avoid the hard stuff and to stay superficial. I mean, that's sort of what we do. I know what I want out of our marriage and out of, out of, out of life, so I control my wife. I tell her what to do and how to do it, and I don't want God to be, the, be in charge, so I want to be in charge. I mean, this is kind of getting to the real nitty-gritty. I'm to confess my sin to my wife and be humble, but my pride prevents me from doing that. So what about wives? What's it look like for wives? Here it is. I know that I'm more confident than my husband. That's pretty true. I mean, I admit that, especially in the Abbott's life. <laughs> that's true. Rather than following the leadership, I'd rather take control of the situation. Of course, that's Genesis 3, isn't it? Um, I'm hurt or frustrated, so I get back with him by saying mean things, unleashing my anger, or just climbing up in silence. Um, I'm going to trust my assumptions about him more than I trust proven character track of his record. I think uh, Tripp kind of uh, talked about that, how we look at the most dark things, the most unbelieving things, and we focus on that. Of course, this is what we do, and this is sort of an uh, active atheist uh, function. Um, and then I'm going to nag him until I get what I want. That might be closer to some other family in the other classrooms. <laughs> See, I'm not completely dumb. <laughs> Number three, track and horizontal, and and, and vertical. Number three. So, trapped in the horizontal and forgetting God's glory. Um, I use it this way. Here's how I use it. Well, I talk about it, treating our marriage as a partnership instead of a covenant where there's two lives involved in this. It's the temporal versus eternal focusing. What we talk about. So, in doing that, um, it's important that um, we recognize some of the things that we do that are worldly. I mean, when we when we do these things, they're they're damaging <laughs> to our relationship. That's the idea: is that we have two planes. We have the horizontal and the vertical, and these two planes, and we, we try to com- we try to compartmentalize those. We'll talk about that in a second. But we forget the one flesh, and how important it is to God. It means unity. It means working together. It's Mark 10. I think Pastor just preached on it in verses 8 and 9. talked about how their marriages are one flesh and become a, a partnership in the sense that they're, um, they're working together. They're unified. Unified together. Can't separate them. And so when our simple choices and attitudes keep marriage entrenched in horizontal dynamics, we, we, all we care about is 
what, you know, what is good for us of today's battles. It could be our money, it could be our uh, time, it could be our things, our stuff, it could be anything. Just name anything. It could be my activities. I love camping, I love motorcycles, and, um, and it's been damaging. I had a time where I was going to go on a motorcycle ride, and uh, I was just all connected with these guys. In fact, I think it was the, what's the long ride to D.C.? Um, Patriots do... Um, the wall? Yes, it's no, going to the wall. Yeah. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> all right, let me, let me at least confess it, okay? <laughs> you have some commentary there. Uh, but anyway, so I realized uh, they were coming to pick me up. I'm taking a group of guys. We're going to ride to the wall. We're riding this big... Uh, there's thousands, thousands of people coming from California and everywhere coming through Missouri. And then I realized cities and they're throwing up because she's had chemotherapy. Yeah, that makes me really nice guy, doesn't it? So I was like, wow. I was like, wait a minute. I mean, this is this is brutal. I mean, when she, you know, I go on motorcycle rides when she was going through chemotherapy and sick, and she didn't say a word. But I'm just saying, it's, it's I became so horizontal. Focus even on the ministry. Sometimes I would I would be focused on ministry things, and I would forget about the eternal focus, especially when it comes to the one flesh of our relationship. So, um, yeah, it's it's not not really good. And when we don't put things by faith and trust in God, we're defending um, what we want to do in, in the flesh. And so here's how sometimes I. What's it look like when you say, I don't trust God in the moment, which means those, those activities. We're having a conflict. We have a disagreement. There's a point. What, are, what does it mean when I'm not putting faith and trust in God? It means that you really you're acting against your feelings and faith when you do put your faith and trust in God. That's what it really means. It's that when you, when you turn and you do put your faith and trust in God, you have to do that against your feelings and your trust. But the horizontal and the vertical are pretty big deals. Um, we, we can too quickly forget about the vertical dimensions of our marriage that it belongs to God. Think in these terms. Always think in these terms when it comes to your marriage. The marriage is a spiritual apparatus created by God, belongs to God. If you think about that all the time, your marriage doesn't belong to you. It, it, it was created in Genesis. It was created by God, and we're to help manage that, and we're being good stewards over, over what belongs to God, and that's our marriage. So we never make decisions that go against our relationship. They just stare down the relationship and just ignore the vertical over the horizontal. So there's number four on this whole thing as well. And it's, again, I brought that one, treating marriage in life compartments. This was Capitol Hill's material, but it's very good. I just commented saying, don't seem like we are God's divine partner in specific areas that we want control in. So we have to stop doing that. We have to stop you know, doing this function. I, I call it, a lot of times you'll hear me in my training, I'll call it everyday land versus Bible world. Everyday land versus Bible world. Bible world is when I come to church, I get my Bible out, I dust it off, I come in, I listen, I smile, I do all the things I do, but when I go home I do what I want to do. I mean, I find this in my own life. I call it the, the mentality of... Everyday land, thinking of Disneyland and, and, and Disney World. Everyday land, Bible world. Um, so, maybe in Christian marriage, sometimes we have to be compartmentalized those things. I don't know if you do this, but we have to be careful that we study our Bible, we pray, we do all these things. But I don't know if 
if we relate certain areas of our life when, with God-centeredness, Christ-centeredness, like sex, money, careers, home life, is it Christ-centered? That's, that's a question we should ask. If we're going through the back door on practical theology, we should ask these questions ourselves. We need to look at the different many areas of our life and, and see if, if anything is back door, if there's something that we can ask ourselves questions on. Because here's what's happening. If we function this way, at least we're pondering upon those particular truths. If we can, if we can grasp some of these things, then, we, then when we get to the conflict, then we can just start functioning that way. We can start saying, okay, now what am I supposed to do? What are you saying? We can, we can stop for a moment before we engage in the battle and waste our energy on our passions, James 4 says, and start asking ourselves good, solid questions in the eternal, not the temporal, not trying to get what we want. It's really a life of other centeredness. is really what it's about. That's how you accomplish all these things in one lump sum, is to be so other-centered that you're functioning on behalf of each other on the ministry. What I'd like to do is I call it growing in grace, and once I'll give you assignments like this, the growing in grace things, I have the marriage assessment. Cindy has the stack of them. She'll let the chair over there. So take one for each one of you and, and fill it out, and then sit down with your spouse and discuss it. Try to discuss the questions individually, if you will, and then try not to solve the problems or assess blame at this point. And then knowledge is power, so God's forgiveness and grace is available. So um, try to use the marriage assessment to blame come later. We'll do that later. Yeah, later on. Well, next next week when Je- when when Jeff teaches, we're going to talk about blame. Okay. I don't think we are, are we, Jeff. No. No. So uh, I'm just saying, I mean, the point is we're just trying to be aware and say, wow, we need to work in this area. We need to work in that area. I'm weak here and you're weak there. And so let's start there where it's non-confrontational in the sense that we want some reality. We want some reality. What's going on here? What's going on there? And, um, you know, I think that I think that's going to start our process. Now, what questions? Q&A? Anytime? Anything? Because we went pretty quick. I realize that, but we're limited. So, anybody? Something that you want to cover? Anybody? Okay. How do you keep the functional part of your life constantly in front of you? Because for the churches seem to be constantly geared towards the theoretical aspect of it. Yeah, it is. Constantly being taught. You know, all week long, it's, you know, yeah. teaching group. It's, it's Bible study groups. It's everything's geared towards the, the mental, theoretical, and, and very little. Really Amen. No, that's right. The idea behind this thing is there's two parts to it. There's there's something that's happening foundational, and there's something that happens publicly. So what we're doing is that we have to teach ourselves to, you know, to to think when we're in that crisis or in that moment. So we have a function like uh, what we try to do is practice thinking right. What am I thinking about? Is this going to cause a problem? And then I'm going to be thinking about my words. Is that going to really cause more problems? And so there's a, there's a function side on the, on the surface of the public part that you have to train yourself to be other-centered. You have to make yourself the other-centered because your heart might be doing something else. So you train yourself to have the right words. You train yourself to think right. You train yourself to be other-centered. You train yourself to, to give grace to be forgiving, to be repentant. You're trying to train yourself to, to function like that. But here's the other part. On the other end, you're investing <coughs> the Word of God in it so it changes your character. 
So long term, we have Bible studies and we do those things because it's changing the DNA of what we think. Our worldview is becoming very clear, uh, clearly biblical. So the lens of life is seen through the scripture, so it becomes our default mechanism. So we're defaulting based on, so the problem is, if it's explosive, then your default mechanism is, is worldly. That's your, it's, you're exposing the condition of your heart. So if you've been trained, you can be very good, like some of the psychologists are really good about you know, having all the little nuances of how you deal with things publicly. And so think about this, say this 20 times, do this. And so you function in sort of a kind of a, a, a mechanical way. But our default mechanism, when there's nothing else around, if it's deep-hearted, rooted in the Word of God, and really the theology is really transforming us because it's changing what we believe, that's the other side. So it's two parts of that is how you handle it. Like mean, we, we don't mind structuring the, the teaching part, and we're hoping that somehow the rest can be organic. Yeah, that's right. And I'm not sure it's, it really always... It's not real clean, yeah. but, it, but it's our effort to do that. So we want to invest the Word of God, in. so we're practicing that. Because remember, only what you practice in faith... Is, is what's going to work. It's the only thing that's going to work is what you practice um, or what God gives you credit for. One of my professors a long time ago said, 99 things learned, truths learned, and that was as powerful in your life as one practice. So we, that's why it's so nice is that we have so much good theology proper in the church, but we don't have much practical theology, and we're starting that trend now. This is the second year we've been trying to press press that in because we want function like Christ. So some people just take it for granted. And when I, we were brand new Christians, I, my pastor, uh, this is in 1990, he's, he preached on uh, reconciliation. And, um, and I saw, I started making a list of people I need to reconcile with and, you know, think people, I ripped things off, I did all kinds of stuff as an unsaved person. I only Christian maybe 60, 90 days. And I started doing all these things and, and you know, rattling a lot of people's cages and one guy works at church said, hey, I heard that you did this, this, and this, and you went down and you met this gal that you, this older lady that you repossessed all this stuff from, you didn't have to, and you reconciled and asked her for you. He goes, you don't have to do everything the preacher says. <laughs> and I thought, what? That was a new concept to me, because I thought he was telling us how to live life. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, I kind of like Christianity now. I, was just, no, I, can, I can do it. You know? But that's sort of where we're at. You know, we... we um, the naivety of being a Christian doing that is so refreshing, isn't it? That you're just reckless in your faith. All right. I think we're done, aren't we? Yes, sir. We need to pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace. And thank you for the word of God as it's changing us and my senses and everyone valuable. Everyone important. And that we are here in the fight. That's why they're here today. We're in the fight. And that's all you said is we need to fight for the faith. And so help us to function where you're glorified right where you're glorified. You know our pain, our disappointments in each other. You know where we're suffering, where we're weak ourselves. And help us to live pulling the log out of our own eye that we can help see the speck in our brothers and our spouses as we're, as we're bringing glory to you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Be with us now in our pastor as he preaches. In Christ's name, amen.